Hello. Hi. 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 Hello. I'm curious about. I'm curious about. I'm curious about. I'm curious about building open, authentic, loving relationship. I'm curious about jealousy. I'm curious about polyamory. Does it just mean that you're fucking all the time? How can I tell my parents that my partner is already married? I'm curious about... How do you know when you're too busy to have another relationship? I'm curious about dominant and subordinate relationships. I'm curious about sexual health. How can relationships evolve with people as they grow and change? Welcome to the Curious Fox podcast. This podcast is for those who challenge the status quo in love sex, and relationships. My name is Effie Blue. And I'm Jacqueline Misla. And on today's episode, Effie and I are speaking with Dr. Eli Sheff, a friend of the Fox, about a recent project of hers. I have known Eli since 2017. Eli is a doctor of sociology, is the author of uh, the book, The Polyamorous Next Door, and When Someone You Love is Polyamorous. And um, she wrote the foreword for Stories from the Polycule. She has spoken at our conferences and facilitated workshops for Curious Fox and contributed to the blog and has done lives for our Facebook group. So all in all is to say, she's a brilliant human and an ongoing contributor and a friend of the Fox. And I'm personally fond of her because Eli is a rare scientist that is looking at non-monogamy and the non-monogamy structures from a scientific lens, which my nerdy brain loves. We check in with her regularly. And uh, last time we checked in with her, she let us know that she's been working with a small team of developers to design a new app called The Bonding Project which helps people to think about the ways in which they want to romantically bond with others. The bonding project challenges the status quo of the dyadic structure and explores the different constructs in which people want to bond. Currently, the 10-question quiz lets you know how you'll fare in one-on-one bonding or solo bonding, many-to-many or one-to-many bonding. So it's super interesting and new insight into how we might choose to connect with others romantically. Their goal is to eventually create a new type of social media slash dating app that connects people with similar bonding tendencies, including folks who identify as asexual or, or a romantic or those who want to be in communal type relationships. I'm always interested when people develop a new kind of dating app because I think there are just not enough in my experience, applications that exist out there that really do capture all of the different ways that people want to connect. I mean, you would know better. You told me once you're on like 72 dating apps or something like that. (laughs) 72,000 dating apps. Um, It's for research. It's for research. Yeah, I help people people date while they're in open relationships. So I like to know the lay of the land when it comes to dating apps. And Mm -hmm. I'm on way too many. There's like two or three groups, how they're built, and they are predominantly built for dyadic monogamous structures. I was on OkCupid. I mean, it's where I met my my current partner. So no shade to OkCupid. But I also, I like take off the app, but somehow I still get emails. I feel like every day, like you're real popular. Everyone wants, someone wants to say hello. So that's incredibly annoying. And so in those moments, I think when I'm thinking about 
the bonding project and the different categories of, of types of bonding. So one-on-one, which I imagine is you know monogamous construct, solo bonding, which sounds like solo poly, one-to-many, which kind of sounds like open or poly, and many-to-many, which sounds like kind of communal relationships and communal living. Mm-hmm. I don't remember seeing any of that, any of those options. <laughs> those options. Okay, How would you like to bond? One-to-one, one-to-many, many-to-many? Yeah. Um, for sure. And I think there should be, you know, I think we're now at an age where we get to pick our orientation, our gender, our orientation and the way that mm-hmm. we want to bond. And it's, it's definitely in the right direction. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. So listen in on our interview with Dr. Eli Chef. Hi, Eli. Nice to have you on the show. Good to see you. Thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. It's always a pleasure to have you, and I'm so excited to talk to you about your most recent project, uh, the Bonding Project, and um, we're going to do a lot of unpacking of it all, and I want to start with just this idea of bonding. Uh, What do you mean by bonding? Is it romantic? Is it social? Is it sexual? Like When you set off to do this project, what did you have in mind when you were thinking about bonding? Initially... We definitely were thinking about dating and romantic bonding. And the more we dug into it, we definitely realized that dating and talking about bonding with dating only works for some people, that there are some people who also want to bond outside of a romantic context and other people who are not interested in romance or sex at all, but want emotional bonds. Mm -hmm. And so while it is primarily a dating app and kind of how to figure out how you might want to date or what kind of romantic relationships you might want, it also acknowledges that people have all kinds of different bonding Mm -hmm. they enjoy. And certainly among the team of developers, we have been increasingly focused on non-romantic bonding, like the the importance of friendships and aromantic bonds are incredibly important and impact the way people manage their romantic lives too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think I've, I have in the past underestimated how non-romantic or non-sexual relationships can have an impact and and the importance of emotional relationships. And that's something that I want to lean more into. And frankly, you know, my my relationship with my wife has evolved into more of a non-sexual, but highly deeply emotional relationship. And, you know, being polyamorous allows then for me to meet those needs in other places and with other relationships and kind of form different types of bonds. So that's really interesting to me. And particularly in the in this COVID space that we're in right now, where sexual intimacy and physical intimacy may not be on the table, it does not yet mean that people don't want emotional closeness. So I, I can see the value in exploring the importance of emotional bonding, particularly in times like this. Absolutely. So you're a sociologist, you have a, a, a PhD, a doctor of sociology, is that is yeah. that's right? right. <laughs> so I'm by no means an expert, but my understanding is that we are, as a species, are pack animals and we're wired to connect and we're wired to bond in small packs. And that is kind of the way of the way of our species. So I'm curious to how what you're doing in this kind of experiment, this research, this kind of cool app that you've designed, how is that giving us more of an insight to um, that dynamic that might be different than what we know from a species level? 
Does that make sense? Absolutely. I would say contemporary sociology, we are nervous about sociobiology because in the past, as a discipline, we have used that heinously. Like it, sociobiology in the past, like in the 1920s through the 1950s, even before that, was used as kind of an apologist regime for racism and sexism. Mm-hmm. You know, like, of course, women shouldn't be in charge because they're naturally responsive and not agentic or something. Mm-hmm. So now kind of the discipline has swung towards social constructionism, which means, you know, we may have genetic elements or wired to be a certain way, but mm-hmm. the way that expresses is shaped by society. Mm-hmm. So right now, society in, especially in the U.S. and in some other places around the world, has this kind of leftover idea that monogamy is the only real way to have relationships. And I got to say that maybe worked great when people, you know, lived in tiny villages and met maybe 300 people their entire life. And they're, you know, most people lived until they were 40. But now that you can meet literally thousands of people you know, across your lifetime, you can find people online, you know, you can, and we're living much longer. Not only are our lifespans longer, but our sexually active lives are much longer. You know, you hit 60 now and you're getting a Harley Davidson, you know, you're like, I'm ready for a new motorcycle. (laughs) 60 is not nearly as old as it used to be. A lot of people are not ready to kind of hang up the clitoris at 60. They're like, I like that clitoris. I still have more to do with that clitoris. So while society still emphasizes this almost like romanticized, almost Disney version of monogamy, where you meet the one and you're to, you know, they meet all of your romantic and social needs for the rest of your life. In reality, that kind of monogamy is very difficult to maintain and quite uncommon in that people are very rarely virgins when they marry now. And a lot of people aren't even marrying, you know, so this kind of disnified monogamy is the only way to be. It just doesn't work for many people. Mm-hmm. But also I would say consensual non-monogamy really does not work for everyone either. Mm -hmm. So finding some balance, a lot of people have gone to serial monogamy, which seems to be a favorite Mm -hmm. where you're just with one person for as long as it works. And then you break up and you're with the next person for as long Mm -hmm. as it works. Mm -hmm. Um, But even in serial monogamy, there's so much cheating and so much overlap of one relationship isn't quite over before you start the next one Mm -hmm. that, you know, even serial monogamists aren't necessarily actually monogamous with the person they've claimed in that time frame. So clearly we need other options besides this kind of traditional monogamy. But I think a lot of people don't know 
what those options might be or how to figure out if it works for them or how to talk to their partners about it. So ideally, we've created this test to help people figure themselves out and bring up ideas to discuss with their partners or their potential partners to kind of start the conversation, at least about how do we want to structure this relationship? That's so interesting. I want to go back to, because I want to make sure I get that language right, because that's that, this idea of the distinction between social biology and social constructionism. Is that what you said? Share that language again. So sociobiology Mm -hmm. is the idea within sociology that humans are kind of ruled by our genetics and that's what expresses and shapes society. So in the nature nurture question, they would sociobiologists come closer to taking nature more seriously. Whereas social constructionism Mm-hmm. says, sure, you may come with this package of genetic disposition. Mm-hmm. Yes, you come with, you know, like you have a, you may have a genetic gender that is linked to your physiology, but how that expresses mm-hmm. is shaped by society. So mm-hmm. it's socially constructed mm-hmm. how, you know, even if you are a cisgender person who feels comfortable with their body and their gender, that doesn't mean you're necessarily hardwired to want to have long hair, which is a, you know, like a lot of women right now, long mm-hmm. hair is very fashionable in society for women. Mm-hmm. But there's no genetic thing that says women want long hair and men want mm-hmm. short hair and trans folks can have any kind of hair they want, you know, mm-hmm. that's all socially constructed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that makes sense. There's there's a lot of dialogue I know about that within the feminist space as well. Or, and you reference this around that women are born to be the nurturers, born to take care, born to, and there's more diet, more and more dialogue. Are were the people born that way, or did from has that how social our social construct reared women, and as a result of that, then we have learned via nurture that that is what our place looks like or is there a slight disposition but then that has been um, exaggerated because of social construct and and to your point how does one know when our social constructs are so heavily prescribed it can be challenging unless you do some sort of a b testing where you have a child raised in society and another raised in the woods away from all commercials all literature all like it's very challenging to really answer that question because of how quickly we are saturated in cultural narratives if you raise a child in the woods Mm -hmm. you know and it has no contact with humans then it doesn't learn language. Mm. It can't communicate. And at least sociologists have sometimes found what they call, you know, these feral children who've been abandoned by their parents or locked away or something. Mm. And they turn out to be socially disabled. Mm -hmm. That if you don't learn language when you're under five years old, Mm. your brain doesn't end up working that way. And if you are 
you know, raised by wolves until you're 15 and then suddenly introduced to society, Mm. you're not going to become a Rhodes Scholar. You're not even going to be able to think in those ways. So there's really Mm -hmm. no way with humans Mm -hmm. to ethically figure out Mm -hmm. the nature versus nurture question because it's so damaging Mm -hmm. to children when they are raised outside of society. So damaging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there is some research around sort of uh, sort of indigenous or tribal communities they sort of come across in the the rainforests or parts of the world that is kind of cut off. And there is some research done done within those cultures. For example, we know that the father role definitely doesn't have to be genetic, right? It's just a, right. a male figure, a primary primary male figure is important, but the biological father is really not that important even with mothering and the, the biological mother versus the primary caregiver, um, which could be a grandmother, which often tends to be a, a situation in sort of tribal living, does a, a, a sufficient, you know, sufficient job in rearing that child. And you don't necessarily have to have the biological mother and the, the biological father, which is what we believe in the, in the Western world. Yet when we discover these kind of civilizations, kind of tribes, we learn that the kids are perfectly fine as long as they have the care and the connection and the sense of safety and security that they get, regardless of who they get it from. It's like the village is literally raising the child. Yes. Literally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Exactly. And so I'm interested how this works because let's talk a little bit about, so I'm I'm curious for you to give us a sense of the bonding project and how that relates to the app and specifically the idea of the four styles and kind of structures of bonding. I wonder where we can explore that a little bit. Absolutely. So the more we kind of thought about it and tried all sorts of different ways to construct the test, we realized that so much of it Like every time we tried to answer, we thought, well, it really depends on, you know, if I'm saying, oh, I'm comfortable sharing my partner with other people. Well, it really depends on how am I feeling about myself? How am I feeling about my partner? Who are these other people? Mm -hmm. So at first we tried to have kind of yes, no, it depends. And then we realized and a drop down menu for what it depends on. Mm -hmm. And that drop down menu got longer and longer and longer. (laughs) And then we realized we just can't cover every it depends (laughs) idea. So we decided to kind of break it down into feel kind of neutral about it lean towards agreeing with some kind of caveats or reservations or completely agree or lean towards disagreeing with some caveats or reservations or completely disagree. Mm -hmm. So it gives people a wider range to kind of cover that. It depends. And then mixing that, their responses with the questions of, would you rather kind of be more independent? Would you rather just bond with one other person? Do you want the freedom to bond with whomever you want to in the moment? Or do you really feel best in a tight-knit network, like a group? Is your allegiance to the group? And with that, we came up with the solo bonding is preferring independence, not necessarily only wanting to be single. Some solo bonders really want to be single and don't really want romantic bonds at all. Some solo bonders are open to romantic bonds, but don't necessarily want that 
romantic bond to structure their entire life or de- to determine what other options they have. One-to-one bonding is probably the easiest to understand because it permeates society where we're told over and over, you're really only supposed to want your soulmate, kind of, this one other person who's your, who's your main person in life. One-to-many can look like different kinds of relationships. It could be someone dating. It could be someone who's polyamorous. It could be someone in an open relationship. It could be someone who's leans towards monogamy, but wants the freedom to see other people kind of on the side. And the many-to-many bonding, we hardly see any examples of that in society. So for people who do have that really strong kind of collective feeling and want to be a member of that small network that the group of, you know, like the four of them or whatever are really strongly bonded and they're all really kind of prioritizing their larger relationship together over any individual relationships within that network are the many-to-many bonders. So we decide, we, we figured out all these different ways people might want to bond and then realize that there's no kind of set formula for that. So people might be either comfortable feeling like, yeah, oh, this is the ideal way for me to bond. You know, this fits really well with me. They might be curious, like, oh, I haven't really thought about that. And there are some things that are kind of draw me about that, but I'm not totally sure. They might be cautious in that I'm not sure I could do that. And it makes me a little nervous. I don't know if that's actually, maybe I could do that under certain circumstances. And then challenged, meaning, yeah, that doesn't sound good to me at all. Like, that sounds like it would be really uncomfortable. That sounds like I would have a hard time maintaining that, Mm -hmm. that I could not relax into that. So the test really gives you, when you take it, it gives you a sense of your score, comfortable, curious, cautious, or challenged on each of those four measures of bonding. So for some people they might be comfortable in all forms of bonding. They're the kind of mega bonders that are like, yeah, bring it on. (laughs) For other people, they might be uncomfortable in all of them, Mm -hmm. you know. But for most people, I would say, they find one or two that are really appealing and then one or two that are not appealing. Mm -hmm. I actually took the test, Eli. What did you think of it? Yeah, this, I mean, it was interesting. I definitely have some, I don't know whether it's sort of interesting to have the conversation on tape, like some technical questions on how you thought about like how the questions, because um, I designed that test. I designed that our open relationships right for you test, which was an interesting idea. Like it took us a long time to really sort of think through how you measure things and how to weigh things, how to ask the questions without leading and then that kind of thing. So I, I mean, I, we can definitely have a conversation, like a technical conversation offline, but I did get my results. And, and they, you know, my results make sense. I'm happy to share them. So apparently I'm challenged with um, a, a one-to-one bonding, mm-hmm. which, you know, uh, it's not new. <laughs> you know, I'm just like, yeah, <laughs> I'm comfortable with um, one-to-many. I'm curious about many-to-many. 
and I'm comfortable with solo bonding. Hmm. So that's kind of where I landed, which, you know, on reflection feels fairly accurate to me. And it's kind of how I've been living my life for, for a long time. So I'm like, yeah, I mean, that's pretty, pretty spot on. So, you know, the results, at least my results, I can only speak to my results. My results seem to come out like accurate feels right. I do wonder though, which is something we talked a little bit about uh, before we started recording, which is those results seem right to me right now. But I can think of situations, times that I've been where I'm like, no, like there've been times when I have not been challenged with one-to-one bonding, but that's where I found sort of comfort and sort of wholeness and really wasn't interested in anything else. And I've definitely been on the other side of that where I felt safe and secure and kind of you know, thriving in other ways. And I'm like, many to many, (laughs) I want to be a part of a community. So I found that it really depends on how I'm feeling, who I'm with, what my sort of environment is, um, how safe I'm feeling within myself, how secure I've been feeling within myself. So it just feels like it's like a shifting, shifting ground. Did you consider any of that while you're designing or like, what is a good way to interpret my results? I absolutely think people change over time and the results you get now might not be the results you would get a year from now because maybe you're changing internally. Maybe your relationship to the world is changing. Maybe Mm -hmm. you thought one-to-one bonding could never happen. And then you meet this person who Mm -hmm. knocks your socks off and you're like, I actually could see one-to-one bonding Mm -hmm. with that person. So Life is complicated. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons we have this more kind of fine tooth thing, this kind of apparatus that says there's all these different bonding styles and you might have all these different reactions to it. And we're, we're encouraging people to take the test and then come back a year from now yeah. and take it again and see how things have changed for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it feels like it could it could be a good part of like a like an annual self audit. Effie and I did a workshop a few months back and created a workbook around knowing thyself with that being the core component before anything else, right? You have to do a self audit and figure out where am I at? And we had a conversation with an educator. Her name is Jessie Fresh around the erotic blueprints. And in that conversation really referenced that it's not like Myers-Briggs. It's not like you take it once and (laughs) you get your numbers and that's it for a lifetime. That these are things that you continue to reflect on and say, do I still want this? Effie has shared that that she thinks that that when we get married, it should, what is it, after seven years, it should expire automatically unless you renew? Oh, yeah. Every 10 years, you need to renew your your marriage for sure. (laughs) Right. It doesn't have to be hard, but you need to actively renew or it gets annulled, like you're automatically divorced. Right. Like a driver's license. Like you got to sign in and say, yes, I agree. But similarly, it sounds like this, like, like we should assume that any kind of personality relationship, something test or assessment we took last year is like going to expire like a subscription and we have to renew again because myself before quarantine, is different than myself during and potentially after. You and I were, were, were speaking before the podcast about the distinction when we are feeling really good in ourselves and our work and that that can add to the type of confidence we feel in our relationship. And, you know, I've shared on this podcast that I found out that, that my wife was having an emotional affair about a month after I'd, I'd lost a job of 15 years. And up until that point, I was the one actively saying, let's open up, let's do this, let's 
be out there. Let's. And as soon as it happened, I was no longer the person that was ready for that at all. And it like broke me. And so me taking this test, you know, three months earlier would have had a different result. And so I I think that that makes a lot of sense of using this as yet another tool in our toolbox to really understand and then communicate who we are and what we want. And it can be a great way to start conversations Mm -hmm. with partners to look at your results and see, oh, I see that we're both really strong on one to many And I'm strong on many to many, but you actually appear to be Mm. cautious or challenged around many to many. So maybe we shouldn't try to have a polyfidelitous relationship. You know, maybe Mm. we should have date more independently and not try to establish this kind of more interlocking relationship. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's curious. So I'm just going to go back to the beginning of, we, we talked about this. So this idea is, you started with thinking about romantic bonding, uh, but where you ended up is just like, just like general bonding of people that you want to kind of keep close to you. Is that, is that, did I write, did I get that right? Still weighted towards romantic bonding. Romantic. Okay. Yeah. Okay. 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 Because I, I definitely see like many to many for me is my natural, I feel like that's kind of, community living, right? I've, I've, I know that I thrive in communities. So I'm curious to sort of how I'm trying to sort of figure this out for myself. Where does the line, what happens when the romantic piece of it um, gets added in, right? So a great example I would give actually right here, my relationship with Jackie, like we're very close. She's my collaborator. She's one of my best friends. We speak to each other almost every day. We work together. We don't have a romantic relationship, but I wouldn't necessarily put that relationship in a different ranking than a romantic relationship. Right. So I'm sort of seeing, I'm just trying to in my head understand how like my relationship with Jackie would fit into this model because she, even though she's not romantic, I wouldn't necessarily think of it as a less of a relationship or less important of a relationship than a romantic one. Mm. So even if I was one-to-one bonded with somebody, technically it's not really, it's not really a one-to-one bonding because I feel right, but they could still be threatened by the, our level of connection or emotional intimacy or how much we talk to each other or things like that, right. or that could come up as not outside of a monogamous structure to have this type of friendship bond. I hear what you're saying. Yeah. I think because the test is more focused on, you know, what do you want from your romantic life? Mm. And for some people that especially the very strong one-to-one bonders who there are, there are some people I think who really only want that almost that singular bond and then Mm. friendships and other things are just less important to them that they really are very dyadic in that way, you know, very Mm -hmm. focused on the couple. Mm -hmm. And like, if they're with their, their couple person, they don't really need a lot of other friends or they don't really need a lot of outside contact. Mm -hmm. And so for those one-to-one bonders, they're like, oh yeah, this is great. That kind of desiring, not just romantic contact, but having deep connections with others I think is more characteristic of either a solo bonder Mm. who wants to have just a lot of relationships and whether sex is part of them or not, isn't necessarily that important to them, but they just want to be free to become really intimate with whoever they connect with. And they don't want intimacy with one person 
to impact their intimacy with another person. Like those are independent relationships just because you're close to Jackie doesn't mean you can't be close to someone else Mm -hmm. or the many to many bonders Mm -hmm. who have the, the kind of group network, that community emphasis, but they don't Mm -hmm. necessarily have to be having sex with everyone Mm -hmm. in their community. Mm -hmm. I think what that expression that you had Effie about, you know, I I may have a romantic bond, but it doesn't have to overshadow these Mm -hmm. other kinds of bonds. Mm -hmm. That says to me that you could be good in solo or many to many. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sure. Which, which kind of rings true, right? And rings true for me experientially as well. So yeah, I mean, this is fascinating. It really is kind of insightful. And I completely agree with you. I think it's um, a really go- good way to one, to sort of get a more of a deep in- insight and understanding of yourself and a great way to start conversations with partners, partner, partner, partners, whomever, really friends, family. So I think it's a, I agree with you. Um, I do want to ask, I, I did. I mean, I did the test, the quiz, and I sort of read all the, the literature that came with it. And it was very much affirming, very much, you know, there's no right or wrong answer. It's who you are. And we just talked about, you know, it's situational. Do it now. Do it in six months, do it in a year and see what you get. And you sort of, it's fluid. And I, and I you know, I, I appreciate that. And I appreciate that language. I do wonder, though, if there's any point you, is there any point that it crosses over to pathology? For example, if you get a result where, you are challenged by all and all and every connection, for example. Somebody gets like challenged on all types of bonding. Is there room there to go, huh, that doesn't quite fit in with what might be considered healthy? Or is that kind of a leading yeah. I think that not everyone wants romantic relationships and that is totally legitimate. If somebody is like, mm-hmm. I certainly don't want many to many, one to one now. One to many, (laughs) even solo, uh, because a lot of the solo questions are like, I maybe want a relationship, but I doesn't, I don't want it to determine me. Mm -hmm. I absolutely think there are some people that like, I don't even want a relationship. Like, I don't want to, I don't want this kind of bonding at all. And I don't think that means they're unhealthy. I think that Mm -hmm. means they could be either aromantic and or Mm -hmm. asexual and a loner. Like mm-hmm. I think society now has a lot more room for people to be single mm-hmm. than it used to be. I mean, there's this definitely this lingering conception that if you're not coupled up, you're somehow malfunctioning or there's something mm-hmm. wrong with you that no one wants you. And I think that's really fucked up. I think that mm-hmm. that has been used to badger and bully and shame people for sure. way too long. And I'm thrilled to see this growing space of recognition for all kinds of relationships, that relationships don't have to be sexual or romantic Mm -hmm. to be real. And for some people, they just prefer a more solo life. Maybe they Mm -hmm. want friendships, Mm -hmm. but romance and, and kind of the entanglements that come with it is just not something they're looking for. And Mm -hmm. I think that's absolutely legitimate. And I am thrilled Mm -hmm. to see society making more room for all kinds of ways to Mm -hmm. bond, even if that means no romantic bonding at all. And at least from the, the, from the team that developed the app, Mm -hmm. judgment is not coming from us, Mm -hmm. you know, in terms of you should be this one way. Sure. Mm -hmm. You know, definitely not. 
Yeah, and that was very clear in the language that the, the nice. sort of how you, the philosophy and the, the results and how to think about your results and everything else. It really did feel like there was zero judgment. There was a, a plenty of room to be whatever comes up, very validating. So that was very very apparent for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. awesome. I do appreciate. I do think you know more and more of the the of our foxes, more of my clients, more people just that we're interacting with are talking about and expressing their desire to be either a romantic or asexual or to be in a polycule or communal relationship or communal living. And both of those things feel like there was less permission for that in the past Mm -hmm. to explore that, to acknowledge it, to communicate it, to go after it. And I, same, really appreciate that now not only do we have an environment where we can begin to have those types of relationships and conversations more out in the open, but that even apps are starting to acknowledge that as well. Um, Mm -hmm. Because I think that that has been some of the struggle so far for folks who identify as aromantic or asexual or those who want to be in communal relationships or communal living is that there's so little exposure about that that it's like, well, how do I meet others is often the question that I hear who also want that. And so this is this is pretty great. And so this will help you assess for yourself. It doesn't yet help you meet other people in that category, right? That's still, that's a part of the next level potentially. Or, I mean, we, so one of the, the people, the person who really came up with this idea, her name is Jess Wise. Mm-hmm. And she has also started this other thing called Mesh, which is kind of a social media, social connection app that is different somehow from the existing ones. Mm-hmm. And people who meet, who are, get their results on the bonding project can then connect with communities on mesh Mm. of, you know, other one-to-one bonders or other many-to-many bonders, whatever. And so we're still building that out. Both of these are coming together at the same time. Mm. So we've got big plans. This right now, the bonding project, we're in our beta test, which means that we had one round that we tested just on our friends and our people in our lives. And now this other round is publicly available mm. and that we're still kind of refining it as we go. Mm-hmm. And then hopefully we'll make the, the leap to like a really polished version. Mm-hmm. I love it. And um, of course the nerd in me is very curious about the results. Are you going to publish the data in any way? Are you, are oh. you going to kind of see what, yeah. Absolutely. In fact, we've already been getting data and it's so interesting. Tell me all. Yeah, it's so great. <laughs> One of the things that has knocked my socks off is that over half of our respondents so far identify as LGBTQ in some way. Mm-hmm. And that is significantly different than the population at large, mm-hmm. which is vastly heterosexual. Mm-hmm. So that could be a function of how we've advertised it, you know, a lot mm-hmm. of word of mouth and mm-hmm. and most of the people designing the test are on the LGBTQ spectrum mm-hmm. somehow. I think we've mm-hmm. got our token heterosexual. Um, of the four of us, there's one heterosexual. Um, so it could be that we just, when we put the word out to our own social networks, mm-hmm. we have very queer social networks. So that was who mm-hmm. either that or society is a lot more queer. 
than we realized, mm-hmm. or that's just who's gravitating to this test so far, mm-hmm. or some combination mm-hmm. thereof. So, but that's one of the things that has really mm-hmm. stood out to me. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, our listeners, we know, are truly diverse. Um, so we will, or we urge everyone to take the test and yeah. see if we can level, level the playing field and see what the the, the straight folks uh, want out there. So um, take the test. If you're straight, definitely take the test. Definitely. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I think, I mean, I, I agree. I think probably combination of the factors you said, right. Our, you know, our communities are queer. Also, I think people who are straight and comfortable in the status quo aren't necessarily seeking, right. Cause they're comfortable and it works for them. And, you know, they aren't necessarily wondering what kind of a bonding style I have, you know, they, they feel very comfortable in, in whatever they've picked or they're happy with the prescription they received and they're like onwards, everything is fine. And they're not necessarily seekers. I think those who don't quite fit into those categories or the prescription doesn't work are the seekers. And I think they tend to, they are, they're more likely to, like take tests or read or you know, explore or reflect on like what might be that like perfect expression for them. I think that might be the other reason too. Yeah. Agreed. So since we are talking about bonding, we want to take a few minutes for us to continue to bond with you and our community to get to know you. And so we have four questions that we would love to ask you to get a little bit more of a sense about who you are. And so as we are reflecting on our changing selves, my first question to you is, what is one piece of advice that you would give to your younger self about love, sex, or relationships? Don't put up with that shit. (laughs) Be willing to, if something's feeling a little weird, be willing to listen to that and give credence to that and not just kind of brush it aside and continue putting up with shit. Yes. Like set a boundary a lot sooner, yes. you know, which I think a lot of, you know, when you're 18 or whatever, how do you know what your boundaries are? You're just kind of figuring things out. So in retrospect, it's glaringly obvious to me, but when I was in it, I was like, okay, sure. This, okay. Try that. Yes. Don't put up with that shit. Get better boundaries. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> yeah. And then- Okay, so what is one romantic or sexual adventure on your bucket list? Boy, that is a good question. Um, You're like, I lived a full life. I did it all. (laughs) (laughs) Well, everything that occurs to me, I'm like, oh, no, wait, I did that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) We've had that before. You're not the first person to, you're not the first person to be like, actually, I think I did it all. Love it. Well, or I mean, if I haven't done it, then maybe I'm really not that into it. I think that I, when I was studying kinky sex, I had never really had any, I didn't even know what it was when all my polyamorous respondents were like, oh yes. And then I'm kinky too. And I'm like, what is this BDSM you're talking about? So when I started studying that, I was like, oh, that's really interesting. But I couldn't explore it in that setting as a researcher. Like, it's not okay mm-hmm. to be like, oh, now you're my research. Well, can you whip me so I can see what that's like? So then in my dating life, I did explore it a little bit. Mm-hmm. And what I realized was that I am i don't enjoy pain. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of BDSM that just doesn't work for me. Like I don't like to inflict it or receive it. I have a high pain tolerance, but it's not Mm -hmm. fun. Mm -hmm. And I'm way too defiant 
to be submissive, but I hate telling people what to do. I hate it with a passion. So I can't be dominant. So I do have some, some interest in kinky sex. I think I would like to find some kind of kinky sex that works for me, mm-hmm. but so yeah, I'm going to put that on my bucket list, finding like, like some kind of kinkiness that is not, you know, dominance and submission mm-hmm. or pain oriented. Pain. It takes a lot off the table. If you're taking yeah. that off the table, that like guts kinky sex in a way. <laughs> I mean, there's other sensations. Mm-hmm that I've really enjoyed other sensations, but Mm -hmm. yeah. So that's what I'm going to say. Yeah. Figure out my kink. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Well, it, it's funny because uh, it, what's left in my mind, I'm like voyeurism and exhibitionism is also technically kinky. Oh yeah. Uh, that leaves those for you to explore. Yeah, I'll think I'll think of more things for you to, to think about. Awesome. I'll send you your way. We did a workshop and a podcast episode with Jesse Fresh around um, sexuality for highly sensitive people. And that was also really interesting because she talked about a lot of tactile things, but like soft touch, sensual touch about building energy. And so creating arousal without touch and that kind of can fall into kink and and it doesn't feel and it's the opposite of pain. So, yeah, I like it. I like it all. And I agree with you. When I first started reading Opening Up and um, was learning more about polyamory, I was like, why is there all this BDSM in here? Like what what is what does one thing have to do with another? Now, certainly years later, I can understand the connection more. But in the beginning, I agree. I think as a novice going into it, you're like, what? Why is everyone talking about this? <laughs> okay. So uh, third question for you is, Dr. Eli Chef, how do you challenge the status quo? I think by just talking about non-monogamy mm-hmm. in general, that really stati- challenges the status quo. And I'm in this weird liminal place where I challenge the monogamists and the non-monogamists because I fully endorse non-monogamy. I think that is consensual non-monogamy can be functional and healthy and fulfilling and a really fantastic relationship style that I just don't have the energy for. I don't have that much sexual energy and friendship is so satisfying to me that I'm not really seeking consensual non-monogamy for myself. So for people who, especially if I say something about consensual non-monogamy that makes other people angry who are non-monogamous, sometimes they'll be like, oh, you can't say that. You're not non-monogamous. So as a monogamous person, you cannot talk about non-monogamy where we're removing your mic. And I'm like, okay, you don't have to listen to me, but you can't tell me to shut up. (laughs) But then for monogamous people, they're like, okay, you freak, you know, we know you've tried this. We know that you're, you're in a non-monogamous relationship. Even if you're monogamous yourself, you don't require it Mm -hmm. of your partners. So clearly you can't be trusted about monogamy. So (laughs) I find it interesting that like, a man without a country. <laughs> yeah. I don't fit solidly in any category. And it just makes some people very mad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sure. Yeah, no, I totally get that. I totally get that. It does challenge the status quo for everyone. So good for you. Good for you. I'm not doing it on purpose to piss people <laughs> off. It's just the way I am. Uh, I love it. And that's why we love you, Eli. Mm-hmm. And um, final question from a nerd to a nerd. What are you curious about lately? Oh, uh, you know, I'm really curious about aging. Mm. 
and sexuality. Mm-hmm. I I think so many older people, you know, we've got this conception that sexuality comes with youth and beauty. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes I'll be talking about that. I teach sexuality, my college students a lot. Mm-hmm. And when I'm talking about, you know, aging and sexuality, sometimes they're like, oh, gross, you know, old people having sex, that's disgusting. So then I ask them, okay, so when are you going to be too old and gross to have sex? You know, at what point are you like just done with sex? And they're like, oh. well, other people are gross when they're old, but me personally, I'm going to my 90s. Yeah, for sure. It's actually, uh, we're going to cover that subject mm-hmm. with uh, the brilliant Ashton Applewhite. I don't know if you. I remember her from Consider This. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So a- ageism, aging, and that's like all her expertise. And we're hoping to host her on the podcast to talk about exactly that. Sex and relationships and aging. And she has a, a very interesting structure of herself and we'll let her tell her story. And yeah, she's. It's, I'm super interested. Super, super interested. So yes to that curiosity. Yes to that curiosity for sure. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for sharing the bonding project with us. Thank you for teaching me. I have a a master's in social work with with a background in community organization. And this idea of social sociobiology versus social constructionism was brand new to me. And now I'm immediately obsessed with it. (laughs) Famously became obsessed and now want to only study that. We'll abandon all else in the study of that. So this was a cool conversation. Thanks, Dr. Eli. Thanks so much for having me. I enjoyed chatting with you too. That was fun. Yeah. Awesome. We love you. So uh, we'll have you back on another show soon. Great. That was really interesting. I think that there were a few things that, that stuck out. Let me say, first of all, again, mind blown sociobiology versus social constructionism. Mm-hmm. It's one of those things. It's honestly like when I learned the word polyamory, we're like, you know, you know a thing and then you're like, Oh, that thing has a word. That's, that's how I felt. I was like the difference between humans and humanity being ruled by genetics, which is nature or social Mm. construct, which is the nurture as a social worker, as someone who is an advocate, as someone who's been in the world of work and change for a very long time, that just inherently makes sense to me. And I Mm. knew that, but to know the language around that, Mm -hmm. that again is now my new obsession. So that was one of my huge takeaways is really being able to just hear that language, but also appreciating that there is more and more recognition around the impact that social constructs have on who we are and how we show up. Mm-hmm. And for sociologists to maybe stop paying so much attention to what does our DNA say? Because the second that we're born, it doesn't actually matter because someone throws, you know, a, a pink uh, <laughs> onesie on us and put the bow in our hair and that's it. Whatever our nature said is, is actually out the window for some time as, as nurture takes over and, and we spend the rest of the life kind of reconciling those two things. For sure. Yeah. I think that's really, I mean, there's, it's, it's, I think just knowing that you have options and that I do think that the, the answer is somewhere in the middle, right? I think mm-hmm. biology as our biology and then, you know, the nature nurture argument, I think is, is going to be a continued, continuous argument for a long time. The, you know, the example that I always give, which is our bodies um, are not designed to sit in this mm-hmm. L shape and stare at it in one direction mm-hmm. with very little eye movement for eight hours a day, yet 
we do it, we choose to do it. That's definitely not how we're designed, but we do it anyway. I think it's kind of the same idea. Sure, we're designed for sort of a little bunch of things. We're wired for a bunch of things, but there are so many of those things we either don't do or we do differently. Yeah. And I, I think actually that leads to my second takeaway from the conversation, which is for the folks who choose to go against the grain, for the people whose truth does not align with the common narrative. And I'm thinking in this moment, particularly of folks who identify as asexual or aromantic or those who want to live in polycules or communal relationships and communal living. There are not a lot of representation or models of that in the world that's growing. And I think that's a great thing. And I love the fact that because I think more resources need to be made available to all types of people, including those communities, that this mm-hmm. app and these conversations are happening. Absolutely. absolutely. They note in there, I was looking at the Bonding Project website, when they talk about who they are, they, hear, they say, we're here to serve the community, to build knowledge about sustainable human bonding, mm-hmm. and to grow awareness about the diversity of human love in the world. And they want to mm-hmm. curate connections with people about what is true for themselves, their partnerships, and their communities. And so, yeah, I like that. That really resonates. Yeah, I have to say, I love their language. I think, you know, I'm hope, hopefully this is what they're saying out there is their true intention, which I, I believe because I, I know Eli and I know she's very true of heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just love their language. I love the way they've handled the story around what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think the last takeaway from me was, it was just a reminder that it's important to continue to check in with yourself and your partners because your desires, your needs, and your preferences mm-hmm. are going to change. And so I like this being one of kind of many tools in the toolbox. And it may be something that we should include in our Know Thyself workbook that you can use to just do a self-assessment every once in a while. Like, what, what do I need right now? What do I want right now? What, what's important to me right now? Yeah, I think it would also help you decide if the narrative, the societal narrative works for you or not, right? Mm-hmm. You can, you, it's a good way to just check in and be like, am I doing this because it, cause it's what I want or am I doing this because I didn't, I don't know what else is available to me or, or like that's what I've internalized. So I agree. I think just doing self-assessment, um, just reflection is a, is a good way to yeah. um, make sure that you're living your most fulfilled, fully self-expressed self. Really. Yeah. Even the language they use in the results. So you can, you know, do you feel comfortable with a particular model? Are you curious about it? Are you cautious? Are you challenged? Mm-hmm. I like that language because it doesn't feel like you you are this or you are not this or you right. want this or you don't want this. It's like right now that feels like that would be a challenge for you. <laughs> right, right. People feels like that'd be a challenge or like just yeah. having one person that feels like that'd be a challenge or this feels like it's more comfortable. It feels like you're kind of curious about this or right. you're cautious. So I like that language. I think that's, I think that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Fun conversation and interesting app. Good to know about the work that is happening out there in the world of apps, in the world of dating, in the world of research, all to to change the noise of the common narrative. I go for that. You can actually find out more about what Eli is doing all over the place. Um, she can be found on Twitter and on Facebook at Dr. Eli Chef. That's D R E L I. S-H-E-F-F. Also on our website at elizabethchef.com. She writes for the Psychology Today blog. Um, you, can, you can also follow her there. And you can find more information about The Bonding Project as well as the quiz on their website. That's thebondingproject.com, bondingproject.com. That's right. So bondingproject.com to find them. And if you want to find us, you can go to We Are Curious Foxes. 
You can find us on Instagram, on Facebook. You can find us on our website at wearecuriousfoxes.com and find us on Patreon. If you are a patron and you support us, then you get access to exclusive events like the one that we just did. We just did a social. That was really fun to connect with people and to chat and to kind of go deep. I think you and I go deep on Patreon in ways that we don't do otherwise. We go deep in those kind of social conversations and we share more. And then we also have been doing bonus content and bonus episodes that go just on our Patreon page. Mm -hmm. And similarly, I have shared, most recently, I shared more of a personal story than I... Oh my God. If you're you're a podcast listener regularly, I'm pretty pretty open. I I share pretty candidly, but I I tend to share a little bit even more freely in a smaller, Mm -hmm. more intimate space of Patreon. And so you can go on there. And if you are a Patreon member, you have the opportunity to also ask questions questions. So for example, in our next podcast, we're going to be interviewing the amazing and fantastic podcast host, author, speaker, Tina Horn. And so you'll have an opportunity to ask questions to our podcast guest via Patreon, and then we will ask her on the show. So join us on Patreon. If you have questions for us, if you'd like us to explore different topics, then there are a few different ways that you can let us know. You can email us at listening at wearecuriousfoxes.com. You can either write us an old school email or you can send us a voice memo or you can record a question or a story or something that you'd like to share on our podcast hotline at 201-870-0063. We did a podcast episode where we had a bunch of uh, Fox questions that we answered. That was pretty fun. We're going to do another one of those soon. Mm -hmm. So be sure to drop us a question so that we can answer your question on the show. This episode is produced and edited by the uniquely accurate and quick Nina Pollock, who makes us sound so much better than we actually are. Our intro music is composed by Dave Saha. We are grateful for their work. And we are grateful to you for listening. And as always, stay curious, friends. Curious Fox podcast is not and will never be the final word on any topic. We solely aim to encourage curiosity and provide a space for exploration through connection and story. We encourage you to listen with an open and curious mind and we'll look forward to your feedback. Stay curious, friends. Stay curious. 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 Stay curious.